Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett. In this series, we want to demystify the worlds of finance and investment. We're going to be speaking with industry experts, strategists, fund managers, and financial planners. We'll hear from investment professionals who are at the top of their game, but also entrepreneurs who need investment, technology specialists disrupting the world of investment, and good old-fashioned active allocators of capital. Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is Paul Ford. Paul is the CEO and founder of ASIN here in the UK. Now, ASIN is a non-financial risk management SaaS platform. Bit of a mouthful. And operational risk or non-financial risk management may not be everyone's cup of tea, but this was a really interesting discussion with Paul. And Paul has held senior positions at some of the big banks in the country, some of the big consulting firms, for example, Barclays Wealth, Credit Suisse and Accenture. And if you think about some of the biggest banking scandals of our recent times, so many are as a result of not enough operational or supervisory control. Human errors, fat fingers, etc. These are all captured in the non-financial risk arena. And we talk about some of these examples. Paul's great. I hope you enjoy it. Do check out his website at asin.com. And without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Paul, how did you start your career? Uh, morning and thank you for having me on. So my first job, I guess, or part of my career was I was an army officer. So I was uh, commissioned into the Royal Engineers. And that's what I did for the first part of my career. I did a couple of tours of Bosnia in the mid 90s. And then I left in 97 to start working in the city. Okay. And then so where did you go? Where was your first move into the city? Yeah, so I originally worked for what's now Accenture. So it was Anderson Consulting at the time. So I moved across from the military into that. And really, it was accidental that I started working in the city. I joined Anderson's and my first assignment just happened to be in the city, working on a big platform build for what's now uh, Clearstream. It was Sedell at the time. So kind of went straight into the world of post-trade processing and built that out and then worked at a number of other clients, Goldman, Credit Suisse. And then ultimately, I joined one of the clients, Credit Suisse, where I basically ran a number of projects and became bigger and more sophisticated over time. I see. And then from Credit Suisse, where was your next move? Did you feel that you always had something sort of entrepreneurial up your sleeve or were you kind of happy in the sort of corporate environment? Well, so I sort of worked my way up inside Credit Suisse and I'd worked for a guy called Michael Phillip, who was the EMEA CEO at, at Credit Suisse and on the executive committee. He was a very entrepreneurial guy. And I learned a huge amount from him in you know how to be entrepreneurial, particularly within a large organization. And then we left together in 2008 to set up a private equity firm investing in Africa, so sub-Saharan Africa, outside of South Africa, in partnership with Shanduka, which was the vehicle for Cyril Ramaphosa, who's now the president of South Africa. And that went really well until Lima went bust. And then, you know, unfortunately, the whole world changed. So it, unfortunately, the timing wasn't quite right. And so take off in the way we wanted to do. And then I joined Barclays. Barclays Wealth was being built out at the time. So joined and helped build out the ultra high net worth proposition across Barclays Wealth, Barclays Capital and Barclays Corporate, which was, again, a really interesting sort of entrepreneurial journey inside a large organization. But I quickly realized that whilst I was really enjoying that, I didn't want to build the sort of last 
for the next 10 years of my career to be working inside a large financial institution. So that's where I'd really kind of got the entrepreneurial bug and decided that I would look at striking out and doing something on my own. And that was really around 2010. So in 2010, you clearly have the entrepreneurial bug and, and you can draw a distinction between, you know, applying it within a sort of large organization and on your own. What are the differences and what made you think in 2010 that, right, I'm going to take the plunge again? Yeah, I think it was one of these things that in terms of taking the plunge that you've just got to do it. You know, you can think about it, overthink about it. I realized that I was too busy in my day-to-day job to perfect a kind of a plan to work out kind of what you wanted to do. I, you know, I thought about a bunch of things. So I originally thought that I would leave Barclays, do some consulting work part-time, so a couple of days a week, you know, whilst to give myself the headspace to figure out what to do next. And then when I was thinking about what kind of consulting I would do myself, I then thought, actually, why don't I create a consulting business? Because the niche I'd identified was people like myself who were chief operating officers of businesses and divisions uh, just didn't have the time to get all the things done that they wanted to. So knew how to do it, but just didn't have the time. And so that was when the first business, Anchura, which can mean bandwidth in Spanish, was born. It was, so it was all about giving CROs bandwidth to get stuff done and decided actually that'll be kind of phase one of the business. But I didn't have a burning desire to be a consultant. You know, I'd done that earlier in my career at Accenture, but I thought this was a great way to kind of start on the entrepreneurial journey. And if we'd met in 2010, I would have told you that the aim was, was going to be a niche business and the aim was to have a bunch of smart people working in some areas where we would spot and identify opportunities to do things better, differently, and in a more scalable way. I probably would have quoted you things like KYC and financial crime at the time, which, you know, obviously there's been a lot of work in that space. So what was the value proposition of Ventura? What were you trying to do? And what was the problem that you trying to solve? Yeah, so the end client zeros, time poor, understood what they wanted to do. So they didn't need ideas, strategy, tell me how to do it. They just needed reliable people that could get stuff done. But they didn't want, you know, either kind of independent contractors who were kind of, if you like, mercenaries, you know, who were just there for the day rate because they kind of got to select them, find them and manage them like their own teams. But also they didn't want the big four consultants who come with larger teams, a lot of overhead of governance and so on. So it was the kind of the people like them, practitioners with a flexible kind of toolkit, whether that's an individual or a team of people. So we were almost the anti-consultants. It was the kind of practitioner-based consulting level. But still targeting, still targeting the sort of bulge back bracket banks or what's the sort of target audience and target market? For yeah, so yeah, all bulge bracket, large tier one banks, and, you know, and we found that, you know, once obviously with banks, it's very hard to get in the first instance and you've got to get set up with procurement and all of the red tape that comes with that. And obviously 2010, it was the, economically it was more difficult, but was easier to get onboarded as time progressed. Then that's become more and more difficult as procurement has become more sophisticated and tightened up. But that, yeah, that's who we worked with. And we worked with three or four of those organizations. And we'd start with, you know, one or two people. And typically, we'd see various COOs saying, oh, where did you get those people from? And it was really a word of mouth. So. 
what was the sort of competitive landscape like? And were you competing with what were the sort of alternatives? I think you mentioned the, the bigger sort of consulting practices or the sort of day rate consultants. Who were you sort of directly competing with about back then? Yeah, I think it shifted. So in the early days, it was really substitution from large consulting firms. So we would see clients saying that we've got XYZ big four firm in, you know, that's been great for a while, but we don't want them to do a lot of the execution work on an ongoing basis. So we would be significantly cheaper and more experienced practitioner-based resources. I think over time, it became, you know, much more of a, okay, so how do you differentiate yourself from teams of independent contractors? And also procurement started to say that you can either be a consulting firm or you can be an independent contractor. And they really struggled with our model because we were neither selling consulting services from an advisory opinion, deep expertise basis. We were selling kind of great people that could execute, and they kind of saw that as resources and push you down that kind of resource bit. And, of course, the end clients, the users, they saw the value, but procurement were very binary about which route you go down, which made selling a lot more difficult as time progressed. Yeah, I see. So then went forward, how then did you come to find your new business or the new incarnation? Yes. So most of the work that we were doing by 2016, 17 was operational risk orientated. And that was just a feature of the where the challenge for those COOs was. And we were starting to get asked questions by clients around, look, it's great, you've done some great work for us in re-engineering our operational risk operating model, identifying our risks, our controls, putting governance around it. But how do we compare to our peers? You know, how does everyone else do this? And you find yourself answering almost anecdotally, kind of, well, you know, you're kind of seem a bit more sophisticated than them. You've kind of, you know, you've done work in these areas, you know, almost you've spent more or less money and time and effort with than others. And I realized that, you know, from that, how do we do a real comparison? How do we create that interconnectivity between firms? And then that really became the kind of eureka moment to say, actually, what's happening here is we've got a discipline in operational risk that is being run on a kind of silo basis both within firms and actually within sometimes within their individual divisions, with no market connectivity, no connection between those firms, no sharing of information, no insights and learning, other than people moving jobs or consultants as we were, and as there are plenty in the market, kind of saying, well, we've done it here and you should do it like this and mm-hmm. what best practices. And yet on the other two risk types that certainly the investment banks have, market risk and credit risk, those are highly interconnected. They're very quantitative. You've got Fitch, Moody's, S&P running the credit risk ratings and intercomparability. So you know precisely what the comparison between two firms is. And the same on the market risk side, you've got Bloomberg, Affinitiv, Exchanges and so on that have digitized, quantified, and everything is very quickly comparable and modeled and so on. And that didn't exist on the operational risk side. And so I saw an opportunity there to start to bring operational risk up to that level of sophistication. And, you know, we had some pretty good insights and head starts in how to do that. What we then needed to do is to figure out how to change from being a people business to a product business. 
Mm. It's very interesting operational risk because it's, as you say, hard to quantify. But God, when it goes wrong, and maybe you could give some examples of where, when it has gone wrong at some of these big banks, when it goes wrong, it can be incredibly costly. Yeah, yeah and you know, you've seen over the last you know 10 plus years, the really high profile cases. So the kind of the rogue traders, the Adabolis, the Cavils, you know, where people do bad things intentionally and there are spectacular kind of losses and then fines and repercussions afterwards. But, you know, through to the kind of unintentional issues where, you know, a process doesn't get put in place, a technology change happens that shouldn't have happened or didn't happen in the right way and payments systems go down. So, and I think these things fundamentally happen because it's reliant on the judgment of people. And mm. people miss things. You know, it's an artisan process, not a data and technology. I mean, is there an argument that some of these banks have experienced enormous growth and perhaps the operational side hasn't kept up and maybe the investment in the operational side hasn't kept up? And therefore, you know, you have these huge risks that build and build and build. I think, you know, the growth and the kind of building up, I think, is a factor but I think that they have invested in it, but I think they've invested in essentially operating cost. What I see is pre-2008 financial crisis, operational risk was very limited to really kind of disaster recovery, business continuity planning, and wasn't the discipline that it is today. It was sort of part of the governance process, very reliant on kind of auditors to catch things. And I think post-crisis, the application of regulation, new regulation, the response of financial institutions has been to hire lots of people. So mm. the reaction is what we'll do is let's go hire a bunch of smart people and they'll kind of figure out how to make this work. And you start to see metrics, you know, being given, whether it's to boards, regulators, shareholders, you know, we're taking this seriously. We've hired 500 people. We've hired a thousand people, 20 people or whatever it is. And then that's a, that becomes the indicator and the measure. And then, these people come in and kind of figure out processes and ways of working that are quite manually orientated. And then they start to automate it. And I think this, this isn't a new trend around operational risk. You know, I think you can look back in 20 years ago and see similar similar trends, you know, not necessarily regulatory related, but business related. You know, as if you go back to, you know, sort of late 90s, you know, you were starting to see exchanges move you know, we still had some open outcry exchanges then you start to see the whole digitization of the industry you start to see you know orders and trading kind of being done electronically straight mm-hmm. processing you know the reduction of manual effort that was all there to ensure that you could win business you know you could have the trading volumes that you wanted you could steal a march on competitors and it was throwing people at it and then it, it kind of got figured out along the way. And then I think the difference then is technology was being invented in order to cope with that volume and to take advantage of that change. I think today the technology exists. It's just got to be applied in different and innovative ways. And I think that dynamic we see in operational risk. And what do you think drives the sort of cost spending on it? Is it the regulator coming in and saying, look, you need to sort this out? Or is it the sort of at management level, are they saying we need to spend an awful lot more or spend more effectively in this area? Or maybe it's technology and technology is driving it. What's driving the industry forward at the moment? At the beginning of this year, so pre-COVID, 
I think a lot of the investment was being driven by avoiding losses and incidents. So, you know, we spend all this money on people, but we're still experiencing issues periodically and probably more regularly than we would like. And, you know, and you start to see firms budgeting for fines and losses and incidents, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And so I think that the investment was how can we do this better, faster, but really to avoid that downside. I think the thing that we see post-COVID is that in a distributed working environment, which you know clearly we've done a huge amount of this year, and one that I expect to continue. Next- distributed working environment, is that working from home? Working from home, yeah. So, yeah. But some people in the office, some people at home, mixing and matching, some people in their business continuity centers. So I think all we'll see is different calibrations of that in the coming years. I think that I think the working from home is now a feature that's there to stay, whether it's 30% working at home, 60% working at home, don't know. I don't see us returning to the operating model that we had at the beginning of this year. And when we talk to all of our various clients, that definitely plays out. How are banks dealing with this? You know, how are banks, if they have their trading floors being migrated, you know, to people's sitting rooms, essentially, you know, how do you, I think you mentioned Quaker Abadeli at UBS, you know, how do you stop instances of malpractice uh, when everyone's so, or decentralized? Yeah, and that's to the nub of it. You've got somebody, you used to have everyone on a trading floor, you can supervise them, you can kind of monitor that, they're using the machines you've got policies around personal mobile phones, all those things. And then suddenly you have them in their own living space where you can't necessarily control the kind of physical person in the way that you did before. And this is what I think then accelerates the whole technology and data investment is you then have to do that through technology. You can't rely on those ways of managing people that you did before and supervising them. And I think that then this is accelerating the need to invest in that, you know, in all forms of technology, both in what we do to ensure that you've got all the risks and controls identified that you're operating and running them, but in supervision technologies, in, uh, you know, in other monitoring pieces. And I think the thing that we've seen over the last few months is the regulators have been pragmatic. They've allowed firms to do what they needed to do to react to a situation that came on extraordinarily quickly. And so, I mean, some banks almost turned themselves into Currys or Dixons in March, April time, kind of, you know, procuring and sending monitors and, you know, and all these sorts of things out to people's homes so that they could function, so that they could operate, so the markets continued to operate efficiently and effectively. But during that period of time, that was the pragmatism. But I don't think the long-term regulatory scrutiny went away. I just think that it paused for a while. And what we're starting to see now is regulators come back and say, we cut you some slack before, but now tell us how you did monitor and, and we'll continue to monitor and make sure that these things don't happen. Mm. You know, in today's world, everything is recorded from, you know, at least from a kind of transactional perspective. So, you know, and we've seen this in some of the libel manipulation cases, the ability to go back, look at records and to do the analysis and work out what happened exists. And I think it's likely that there are some things that have been stored up that will come out over time, but it wasn't a free pass. It was some pragmatism from regulators, not a free pass. And I think we'll see that tighten up. You can't just get everyone in a room. You know, Before it'd be like, right, we're going to spend two hours in a room, whiteboard, work out what we're going to do around this. 
that's much different to do over Zoom or Teams and to do that type of work. So on that, I mean, have you had to, presumably, had to shift some of your working practices, but have you had to, post-COVID, materially shift your sort of product and service offering as well? I think for us, it's accelerated it. So there are things that we thought we would do in a year or so's time that, particularly around kind of measurement of risk, that we've seen a lot more demand for more quickly, and also the impacting of kind of new and changing regulations. So our product roadmap has accelerated and shifted in priorities, you know, in order to react to those, that kind of client and market demand. Well, what advice would you give to maybe people sort of halfway through their career who are kind of thinking as you were thinking at Barclays Wealth um, about taking the plunge and going off and doing something entrepreneurial? So I guess there's two pieces of advice I guess I would give. The first piece is one about taking the plunge entrepreneurial, but I think it's a sort of career advice in general. When I was 21, 22 and was working out what I wanted to do post-university, I, I was kind of, you know, shall I, shall I go and do the kind of conventional, you know, milk round, go and do a, a kind of grad training scheme at a commercial company, or shall I join the army? And I, you know, I realized at that point that, you could join the army at 22, you couldn't do it at 40. And so it was one of those, well, you know, let's take the plunge, let's do it. If it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, I don't get in or, you know, whatever it is, then, you know, no harm, no foul. So, you know, there are things that are just, there are opportunities. There's never a perfect information, but there are things that you can do now that you can't do later. And I think the same is true of taking the plunge into an entrepreneurial journey. You know, there's never a perfect time for it. You know, when I set out, I was, you know, just about 40, you know, family, kids, all those sorts of things. It sometimes didn't look rational. You know, why would you give up one thing to do something else? But I'm, I'm really glad that I did. And if you jump into it, you, you know, you find ways to make it work. And I think mm. part of the advice that I'd give is, Actually, it's related to a piece of work that we did at Barclays. We did a survey. I think it was about a 1,000 entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, as to what was the kind of key characteristic that made them successful. And there was about 20 characteristics from luck, great idea, capital, timing, you know, so on and so forth. And of these 20 items, the sort of the response rate was sort of up and down for 19 out of the 20 and there was this one item that was the standout, you know, result. And at the time when I worked inside a corporate, it surprised me. And now it doesn't surprise me at all. And that characteristic was perseverance. And actually, that is, I think, the the single most characteristic you need to have, which is in an entrepreneurial journey, things can take longer than you think. They can there's plenty of knockbacks and so on. It's easy to enjoy the successes, but you've got to persevere through the hard times. And that, you know, obviously that's not being bullheaded, but you know, you've got to manage that balance. But I would say perseverance and you know, and possibly resilience are the two mm-hmm. attributes that you have to have. Paul Ford, thank you for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Paul Ford. If you want any more information about ASIN, go to their website at asin.com. And if you've enjoyed the show or indeed the series, then like us, subscribe to us and tell your friends. 
The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.